when I was a guest a couple of weeks ago, these guys started to brainstorming about why don't we do a live podcast from the dialogue user meeting? And I didn't have any objections to that. So here we are. And I'll give the word to Connor, who will explain to you what's going to happen and how. Take it away. Welcome to another episode of ArrayCast. Uh, my name is Connor, and today we have an extremely special episode because we are recording uh, live from the Dialogue APL 2021 conference, which uh, for those of you listening to this was a conference that just happened a week ago, if you're listening to it when this gets released. But if you're listening to this in two years, then it took place two years ago. Uh, so the way this is going to work is I am going to uh, briefly ask our four panelists, I believe, to introduce themselves. They'll give a brief introduction. And then we're going to start off with a tiny recap, just talking about our thoughts on the past two days, because I believe we are sort of the last formal session of this conference. And then we will also have standing by um, many of the uh, speakers and presenters from this conference. So uh, we will be monitoring the questions. So you can ask questions of the speakers. You can ask questions of the panelists. Um, and yeah, we are going to sort of moderate. I'll be moderating, choosing some of those questions. I think I'm not, I can't actually tell if the chat is open, but feel free to open up the chat as well. And I can monitor that. Um, if funny things are said, we can, we can bring that up as well. But first we will start uh, with our brief introduction. So I will ask uh, Bob to go first, uh, then we'll go to Adam, then we'll go to Richard, and then we'll go to Rodrigo, and then we'll circle back to me and go from there. Thanks, Connor. Uh, my name is Bob Terrio. I am an interloper. <laughs> I am a, a, a J enthusiast, but uh, actually one of the, my first array language was APL back in university days. And uh, so as a result, it's kind of neat to be involved in all of this and watching where the array languages go. I found this conference really neat. And just an aside, because he's not here, but he's a regular on the, on the panel. Stephen Taylor as well participates. He wasn't available today. He has another engagement. Um, but uh, he's the librarian for KX Systems, so he's another interloper. So I guess I get to represent interlopers. I'm Adam Brodzewski. I'm a full-time APL programmer at Dialog. Uh, I'm Rich Park. I'm a APL evangelist, and uh, I teach APL sometimes, and I'm uh, mostly working to raise awareness of APL and array languages outside of the APL space. And my name is Rodrigo Gironcejo, and I make Richard, <laughs> Richard's words my own. So apart from the name, everything is more or less the same, APL evangelist, and trying to build a, an array-oriented community here. And as mentioned before, my name's Connor. If you just were listening or watching uh, Richard's presentation on uh, sort of the Dialog APL media update, uh, you'll know that I am a professional C++ developer. So uh, although I am a huge array language, APL BQNJ enthusiast, um, I spend a lot of my free time, you know, coding little problems in array languages. Day-to-day, uh, -day, I develop in C++. Um, I'm also on the C++ ISO committee, so I help evolve and standardize that language. Um, and I work day to day at a company called NVIDIA. So um, hopefully in the future, there might be some, I don't know, GPU enabled or APL or array-like language, but that'll that'll be uh, for a later date. Um, and sort of, yeah, Bob talked to this. I guess we should briefly introduce all of our regular listeners will know what this podcast is about. Um, but for those of you that might be watching this live, and this is the first episode you're hearing of ArrayCast. Uh, so although we're at an APL conference, um, the ArrayCast podcast 
Um, we cover all array languages or uh, array adjacent uh, languages. So as mentioned before, J, uh, K, Q, APL, BQN. Um, and I think in the future, there's going to, we're going to have people on speaking about even sort of less well-known, like there's a array language coming out called ShapeRank, or it's already out and being developed. Um, so yeah, if you're interested in APL or maybe not APL or other languages, uh, we, we talk about uh, a plethora of array languages. So um, at this point, I guess maybe we can do a circuit again. Um, and then people can say whatever they want to about the last two days. Maybe they had a favorite talk, a favorite moment. Um, or something they're just looking forward to based on what they've seen over the last couple of days. And uh, from there, we will start taking a look at some of uh, the questions. And I'll also run through the list of names that I can see on my screen. Um, or actually, I should ask, can everybody see all of uh, the participants? In that case, then I don't actually, so Adam's nodding his head. So I don't, if you have a question for someone that is on screen and visible, um, feel free to just ask that question in the Q&A and, and mention their name and we will uh, ask that question live to them. So I guess let's go back to Bob and then we'll go to Adam and Richard and Rodrigo. And yeah, feel free to say briefly what you thought about the last two days of the Dialogue APL 2021 conference. Well, one of the things I wanted to say was, uh, and people who haven't tried to organize an online conference probably don't appreciate how difficult this is to do and how bringing everybody, like even this screen here, and, and I include Josh David, who this morning apparently moved uh, to a local library so he could get internet connection to do his presentation because internet went out between New Jersey and Chicago. So um, this is actually remarkable that you can do these kind of things and that you can do these things online. And if you do go back and listen to um, Git's uh, present or episode uh, with Ray, she talks about how important it is to get people together. And I completely agree with that but still appreciate what's being done to do this online. And that's my impression of this conference. It's been amazing. And thank you for putting it together. Well, um, I'd say definitely some exciting things that have uh, been presented here. Um, we've talked about in previous episodes of the Raycast, how APL traditionally has had problems with communicating with the world outside, um, dealing with interfaces to other things. And I think um, several of the talks here are really showing that this is finally coming together, finally getting tooling that makes it possible to actually employ APL in real life work as well, not just as a toy. You'd probably qualify that with for people coming to APL for the first time now, because obviously there's a large contingent of uh, existing users who do use APL in real life for their work. But uh, I think they've, I don't know, figured out their way of doing it. But um, definitely the combination, for, from my perspective, of uh, APL talking to the outside world, that, that kind of story improving, as well as um, some of the new materials, like Stefan Kruger's talk was really entertaining about his book. And I've also read that. And it's you know really excellent in terms of onboarding people who aren't familiar. And they're going to want to see that story of APL talking to all their other favorite technologies as well. So yeah, I think that's really exciting as well. You know, on my end, no, I'm just going to detail everything you said, Richard. Um, so, so far, my that's why we hired you, Rodrigo. Just... <laughs> yeah, I hope you hired me for for other reasons, for reasons other than just mimicking you. But Brian's presentation, and especially the the analogy with the treehouse, was the thing I appreciated the most because, on a personal level, I do love building everything from scratch. 
But sadly, as it turns out in the real world, it's often more practical to use the tools that others have already built before us. And so I'm very looking forward to something like Tatan being adopted and easily usable by by the mere mortals like I am. I'm going to say that it's almost like a dream, right? Because, uh, you know, I've only been around for three years, but a lot of talk from um, some of the new and prospective APL user spaces has been like, oh, where's the package manager for APL? Uh, where do I go get the packages? And wow, it's coming. Uh, that's quite cool. And yeah, before I give my little uh, recap, I will say encourage people now. So after this, we'll start the Q and A period. So currently, there is an empty queue. Um, so yeah, if you if you do have questions you want to ask any of the people or the panelists on screen, now is the time to to enter them. Uh, otherwise, this is just going to become a a regular live from uh, Dialogue APL twenty twenty one, and we're just going to talk about whatever we want. Um, so full disclosure, I have not seen all of the talks because I was uh, both working and participating in this conference. Um, but of the talks that I did see, uh, I definitely am excited to play around with the scripting slash link stuff. So uh, for those of you that don't know, I wrote my first line of APL in 2019 uh, over like a weekend, but was too busy to really dive into it and didn't really dive into it until December of 2019. Um, and then since then, I've sort of actively been learning it. But for a long time, uh, I didn't know about APL Orchard or any of the communities. So I just had the IDE editor and my experience with it, or I used tryapl.org for the first bit. It was just writing expressions, like simple expressions, just using the REPL to build up solutions to small things. But at a certain point, you progress past the point of just wanting to write single liners or to go back to, uh, you know, uh, a function that you've written and edited. And I didn't know how to do that. And I think I showed up or I discovered the British APL webinar. And then Adam quickly was like, oh, let's just do like a Skype and I'll show you. And he showed me how you could like hit shift enter um, or there was some shortcut that popped up a little window where you could edit things. And I was like, oh my God, this is, this is exactly what I've been needing. Uh, but then once you know how to do that, at some point you, if, especially if you're coming from a language like Python, you are used to just writing a small script and then, you know, hitting save and then interpreting it or executing it. And I've actually not really gotten to the point where I've done that um, with APL. Usually if I'm using the ride editor or the IDE editor, I am just you know building up functions that call other functions. And then the top level function that I call main or something, I'm just going to you know keep on running. So you might have like the equivalent of a script, but it's in the form of several functions that are stored in a workspace, which just coming from like Python land or whatever language you develop in, um, sort of feels weird. And if you've ever developed in a language like Clojure, which is a really popular Lisp for however popular Lisps can be these days, um, they've got like a really nice interactive thing where you have sort of a script, you can execute the whole file or on a single line, you can just hit like shift enter and that'll execute that single line. So it sort of combines like the REPL slash, um, you know, executing a whole file. And it seems like based on the presentations, like I haven't played around with any of it, that we're going to get that sort of experience. Like the REPL is what we currently have. And now we're getting the ability um, to do uh, scripting stuff. And on top of that, uh, I had heard of uh, Pineapple from, from Rodrigo before, but not seen it in action. And I have no idea what it is like to actually write APL in the midst of a Python file in VS Code. I assume you have to have the keyboard set up in order to do that. But it's intriguing the idea of sort of, there's this quote from different communities of uh, functional programming where 
you know, people say, oh, unless if you have monads and Haskell, how do you do IO? And their response is, well, functional programming, really what you aim for is a functional core and an imperative shell, which is exactly what um, Rodrigo was showing there. So I'm not sure if that's the way, you know, people want to develop in the future, but I think it's a really neat exercise, especially if, you know, schools are teaching Python, uh, a bridge potentially to get them to do that. It's just like, oh, here's a little APL.eval function and you can write some APL code. So uh, a ton of cool things that I have to look into and a ton of talks I have to catch up on. Um, and with that, I'll, well, first I'll let, if any of the panelists want to respond to what I said, because uh, that was just an incoherent ramble. Um, Adam, you want to go ahead? Yeah, I, I, I totally get how people coming from other programming languages have some expectations as to how things work. They want to write a script and then execute it and then maybe get some error trace and then you go and look for your problem and fix it. And I, we are going that direction of allowing those kind of, that kind of mode of, of working. But I think that somebody sticking to that are losing out. It's kind of like using APL and then writing for loops. You need to be able to get out of the box a bit and try the interactive programming. I think that's a large part of it. APL is really, and all APL type languages, really languages much like human languages are. We communicate back and forth with the computer. And if it's just this one-way communication, you run something, you get a bunch of errors, you try to fix it, you run it again, you're losing out on the ability to, to modify things as they're running an experiment in the interactive session and seeing what works and then sticking that into your program and continuing a bit. So I would encourage people to go and explore the interactive aspect as well. Yeah, I guess I, what I would say to that is that uh, I 100% agree. Like my preferred way to develop is like in a REPL. It's, it's like, oh, I need to solve some problem and I'm going to start with, okay, I, I need to do five things and I'm going to slowly build up an expression that is a composition of those five things. Um, that is my preferred way to do that. But at a certain point, when you start writing an application, you have to you know write more than just a small expression. And then the question is, is like, what is the interactive version of that. And it is becoming blurred even between like interpreted and compiled languages. So like in C++ Topia where, where I live, uh, there are websites, um, the most popular one is called Compiler Explorer that actively recompiles um, while you are coding. And so like, as soon as you stop typing for like even a second, it'll start compiling and it'll interactively like show you the output as you are sort of coding. So. Technically, you don't like people don't think of compiled languages as languages with fast feedback, um, but with like you know incremental compilation and these new kinds of websites, it's blurring the line between interactive and what people wouldn't consider interactive. So I guess, and that's why I sort of mentioned the closure thing is like they have built in the REPL experience into like file. Uh, development. So you can build up all your functions and just build them up one at a time and execute them one at a time. And then at the end of the day, just hook them all up. Um, but yeah, to say the least, all of this stuff sounds very exciting. Um, and I'm looking forward to checking it out. And, and on top of the interactivity, which is sort of endemic to the array languages, they all seem to work very well that way. One of the things I was really impressed with was uh, early on an earlier episode, there'd been issues raised about how hard it is to move between workspaces or import workspaces in APL. And a lot of that seems to be being addressed and with different things like the GitHub and the Git repositories and moving things back and forth and then taking it to the next level, Pineapple, where you're actually interacting with another language and you can import uh, um, packages from another language. I think that represents one of the 
places that some people who were using array languages found quite challenging, um, especially I think more in APL where you're looking more with, with the binary, the workspaces than the, the script-based languages like J. Um, but that is, I think that's a real step in the right direction. It opens up to a much wider group in the community who would be using um, languages would be interesting, I think, uh, as you mentioned, uh, with an engine that might be uh, array-based and then using a wrapper around that that might provide you user interface, things like that, that, um, you know, I think those things will come with the array languages, but they may not be as developed because just of the size of the communities of some of these procedural languages. Richard, go ahead. I think it's a, it could be a double-edged sword, actually, because I remember uh, one of the winners of a previous APL problem-solving competition, I think it was Elva Bjork. I remember him saying during his presentation that year, he was like... Um, he said, oh, I found it really refreshing that uh, in contrast to the more popular languages, um, when you go to solve a problem in APL, the first thing you do is not Google, how do I solve X, Y, Z in APL? And you actually, you know, partially you're forced to uh, think about it yourself, although maybe uh, some people might prefer to say you're encouraged to think through the solution and code it yourself. And as, you know, as much as we want this uh, community to grow and uh, the ability to find your answers quickly uh, to improve in a lot of ways. Um, part of me does wonder whether we'll, we'll lose that little part of it for people coming to the language for the first time when one day you can Google, <laughs> just search up how, how do I solve X, Y, Z and someone's just copying and blindly copying and pasting code snippets. But Well, I guess I can re reply on behalf of Jay, we're almost Google proof. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the secret message. <laughs> Make it almost impossible to Google. <laughs> yeah, G Googling for J is first you Google J, then you Google J language, then you Google J software after you learn that J language isn't enough, and then you just go to the J software website and search there. And even then, search isn't great, but uh, uh, Rodrigo, you're going to say something. Yeah, I want to reply to actually to Richard's comments. And I think it goes back to something that Connor mentions a lot in his videos. So APL is much more inviting to experiment with. So if I have an, an ID in Python, I have to type much more code to check if it makes any sense. Uh, when in APL, it's just with three primitives, I can check if my idea makes any sense and then I can build from there. So even if even if APL isn't Google proof like J or actually this probably also holds for J. I don't have much experience in J, but it's it's much more inviting to experiment with. So even when you can Google for things, hopefully people will still have or still feel the need or the desire to experiment and try by themselves. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Although you did just say that that's something I say all the time. So <laughs> that's not surprising. Um, all right. So we have uh, two questions lined up in the Q&A. Um, and like I said, feel free uh, to ask any kind of question, whether it's a sort of generic question for the panelists slash speakers, or if it's targeted at one of the speakers or presenters, um, feel free to throw them in the queue. Our first question is from Aaron Chu, who I believe is a past presenter at um, at least certain APL conferences. And uh, his question is, what is the killer app for APL? What Aaron, what Aaron Sue is, is a, is a snake in the grass who knows exactly what where he is and what question he's asking to what audience. <laughs> He he should be on this panel right now answering the, answering his own question, uh, but I do see <laughs> and I'm pretty pleased to see Morton Kronberg with a hand up. So I think you should answer this, Morton. 
<laughs> so when when the young lions push me aside at dialogue because I'm standing in the way of progress, um, I have an idea to build a, a data transformation tool because I think that's actually the the killer app for APL. Pretty much all the successful APL applications I've seen have the most amazing data import transformation cleaning front ends that they use to import data in in a variety of uh, of formats. And I think it should be possible to to build something really fantastic. Now I've given my idea away, of course. So it's going to be a crowded space, but uh, there you are. Does anyone want to take a next stab? I have a quasi answer, but I'll let anyone else go first if they... Uh... I'll say go for it. My uh, answer is sort of a non-answer um, in that it's not actually an app, at least for... Um, where I'm at in my career and at, on my sort of array language journey, because, you know, if, if I think back over the last almost two years now, you know, my view of APL and array languages has evolved. Um, but it's, it's the title of Ken Iverson's Turing award-winning paper. It's a notation as a tool of thought, um, which like when I say that it, it's, it brings to mind, like any time someone had explained how magnificent like the Grand Canyon was. Um, and I was always just sort of like, I mean, I'm sure it's beautiful, but like it is just a hole in the ground. Like how, how magnificent can it really be? And it's one of those things where like, until you have really seen it um, or in the case of APL, like, you know, played around with it, um, it it's hard to understand what it is to um, have the way you think be affected by uh, the notation. And like, this is, this is probably, we'll cover this in a future episode because I don't want to go on a tangent. Um, but yesterday in one of the sort of post-conference discussions, it was being discussed, you know, tacit versus explicit and which one is more clear. And, um, and yeah, like I, I, I really, my developing belief is that Ken Iverson did APL from 1960 to, you know, 1990. And then he went to Jay and did basically what is APL 2.0 in ASCII form. And that was first when sort of really powerful tacit programming and trains showed up, which then got folded back into uh, APL, Dialog APL in 2014. And it, it's my developing belief that like there is so much beauty and like purity in tacit programming um, where... I'll solve a problem two or three different ways, look at it and be like, there's got to be something simpler. And then I'll realize, holy smokes, like the three train using like four symbols. Um, and it's so, so beautiful. Like I have one problem specifically in mind, um, but like my ability to come to that elegant, beautiful solution um, isn't, would never have been possible if I didn't learn APL and then didn't continue to learn like the tacit forms and the tacit expressions. So is that a killer app? I'm not really sure, but it's, it's what I think is the most like valuable thing in picking up APL. Yeah. That that's my, my non-answer answer. Um, Bob. Well, I guess if, if you're looking at killer apps, I'm, I'm not sure I have an answer to it, but I think you're right on the, on the notation being a way of thinking and then that's the power of it. But to me, that's not so much like a killer app is something that, people would use before they realize it's the language. Like I'm thinking things like Excel, people were jumping on Excel before they knew how it was written or what was behind it. And that became a killer app for a platform. People needed to get Excel or, or I guess the, um, I'm trying to think of the other name of the spreadsheet that first came out and it sort of launched Apple because... Visicalc? 
Yeah, VisiCalc, because it was that the uh, accountants jumped on it because suddenly they could do things they couldn't do. And and that sort of launched a platform. Um, and In fact, that actually launched Apple Computer because people would go out and buy an Apple Computer because it ran VisiCalc. They didn't care about anything else about it. And I'll just mention, in case you're listening to this, that was Ron Murray. And, and uh, you might not have heard his voice before because Ron... And I get a chance to mention this. Ron has actually kind of been on the podcast, kind of, because the first podcast I think we did, somebody posted the link to APL, and Ron came in and said, well, what's going on? And and he was really nice and everything, but we ended up taking it out of the podcast because we thought we would embarrass him. But but he's this is his second appearance on, well, I guess if, if you're talking about published, this is his, his first appearance, but... But that's right, Ron, that Apple was really launched and it made a huge difference with VisiCalc. I, well, I don't have an answer for a killer app, but I think the way of thinking of it as a notation is a way of thinking about a killer app, perhaps if it comes through education, if the notation starts to be uh, incorporated because it's more consistent and it's executable, um, that may be the ultimate killer app. If the people in schools start to see the ability of having a notation that's consistent and you can actually also run through a computer, um, that would be huge. But uh, education is a very hard uh, castle to get entry into. That's true because uh, the problem is people nowadays treat education and programming languages as preparation for a career. So the first thing they ask is, how hireable will be I be if I learn this language? How many companies want to hire this? The thing that we sometimes miss is APL is an experience as well as a language. In some ways, given our quick access to files and other interfaces, it almost feels you have very low bureaucracy. There's little between, very little between you and the data. You don't have to write four expressions or things like that. You just start writing APL expressions with the variables. Yeah, there's something um, something very sad about uh, the state of affairs. Of I understand university students; they want to be employed. That's part of the reason they're going to to university. Um, but but in one of the local universities in Ontario, Canada, where, where I'm situated, Waterloo. Uh, they teach uh, a textbook called HDDP, which is how to design programs, which is sort of the uh, university-affied university uh, P Structure Interpretation of Computer Programs, which was taught for decades at MIT. And um, that version of that course at MIT used to be taught in Scheme and Racket, and now it's taught in uh, Python. But the Waterloo version is still taught in Racket. Um, but I just, I, I know a ton of Waterloo students, and like the number one complaint I hear is like, why do we have to learn Racket? Um, but they miss the entire point that like developing in a scheme or a Lisp is an incredible language to learn the fundamentals of computer sciences uh, in because it's there's there's so little there you can you can learn the the syntax and the language in basically like a day um, and then focus on the important stuff and so I think sometimes it's missed that uh, just because a language is is niche or it's not as popular as Python doesn't mean that it doesn't provide a ton of value. Um, in some other, in some other way, using uh, Python from APL and vice versa. Kimo Lima has constructed a mechanism so that you can do the same thing with R. Right? You can move data in and out of R just as easily as you could do with Python. So in general, we should be able to do that. Uh, any two programming languages should be able to interact. 
I mean, I think that's partly why Python is so popular. It's the interop. Um, you know, they say it's the best language for nothing, but it's the second best language for everything. Um, <laughs> Rodrigo, you've had your hand up. Um, yeah, thankfully it's a virtual hand, so I don't get tired. But it's um, yeah, my comments also change, but it, people keep saying things I'd like to address. And it's <clears throat> wasn't it um, Ellen Perlis Perlis that said that a language that doesn't change the way you think isn't a language worth knowing. Yep. Some isn't yeah, and so I think that that's that's the case with APL and probably with records you were mentioning. It's maybe you don't get to be employed because you know APL. But for example, for me, I, I use Python for a, a lot of things and my Python code changed and more importantly evolved because I learned APL. And there was this, I was implementing a couple of, a, a couple of toy functions that solved a toy problem in combinatorics. And all of a sudden, when I looked at my code, I realized that that's not the way I would have written it two years ago. And the only thing that changed in between was I had, well, I mean, I obviously learned more Python, but I wasn't using any advanced features. I was just thinking with APL on the back of my mind. And so the code was different and was better. And so that's one of the key benefits to learning APL, but people can only experience it after they learn APL. Yeah, bit of a chicken and egg problem. Uh, we'll go with uh, Steven and then we'll go Victor, two of our presenters. Yes, I'd just like to mention that I'm, I'm teaching a course in advanced uh, sampling statistics, and I'm using my program Tamstat, which I like to, I like to think of as a killer app. <laughs> but um, one of the problems I've found is that, particularly in teaching an advanced course, is that I've I've written a lot of functions that uh, that do calculations uh, in statistics, and they do a lot of things, but when you get to some of the advanced stuff, we 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 actually ha I actually have to do some just some external APL, uh, which I can do in Tamstat. And the problem, I think, the problem with that is uh, I have to I, I try to in the beginning of the class I try to teach them some basic APL about arrays and functions and operators, but um, I don't want to. Introduce the. I don't have time to introduce the whole language, so I try to introduce. I try to introduce some concepts little by little. Uh, I had to use out of product, and that um, and um, that got to be a little challenging. But um, my my question is, it's I like to use APL as much as I can in the class, but you can't really teach the whole thing. You have to teach little bits of it. And, and introduce them. The other option is to write cover functions for some of the APL, the, the more complex uh, APL expressions. But uh, this is the first advanced statistics course that I've taught. And it, it'll be interesting to see how the students, I'm, I'm trying to observe how the students react to it. Victor, do you wanna go ahead? The programming languages we, we, I was taught in my university Actually, I think it's just one. I I was taught Python, but in the electrical department, uh, electrical engineering, they do. I'm aware they do Fortran. Um, there's MATLAB. Um, there's R, and then there are other assembly languages that they teach them. In chemical engineering, they only use MATLAB because that's the only one we are advised to learn. We're not particularly taught to advised to learn. And the rest, 
we get books and tutorials and try to learn in any way we can. But in the CSE department, I think they actually really dive into a lot of different programming languages because I always hear the students grumble and complain about how these languages and how these other languages are different. So yeah, just to, to fill the listener in. So there was a question from uh, Ray Polvica. Polvica. Polivka. I apologize, Ray. Um, and which was asking Victor uh, what programming languages are taught at uni university. And the context behind that is that uh, Victor gave a presentation earlier today as the runner-up winner, I believe I have that correct, of the uh, Dialogue APL student competition, um, which I believe comes with a cash prize. Uh, and so, yeah, Victor took second place, gave a presentation on that. Um, and it, I think it's, I think one of the awesome parts of that competition that happens every year, sure, you get to win a little bit of money, uh, but because it takes place virtually, um, the number of people that are able to compete globally uh, is basically unlimited. As long as you have access to a computer that can download from the internet, um, it's, it's a pretty meritocratic thing. Um, and so I think if I recall, Victor, you said that you're studying in Nigeria, is that accurate? Yes, above me, Awolo University in Nigeria. Yeah, that's awesome. And so how did you, not, well, I guess now I'm asking a question, but so how did you come across the uh, APL? Did you just randomly stumble across it online or did you know someone that had known about it? Okay, um, there was this friend of mine, he's in Electelect. So we work together when it comes to programming languages because we are like enthusiastic about projects and stuff that involve programming. So he found it on a code go website. Then he came to tell me that, he stumbled on this that I is sure I would be interested. So that's how I got involved with APL. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. We will um we'll definitely find a, a link to the Code Golf website and throw that in the show notes. Um, um we have heard that many, many folks have found their way to APL from that site. Uh Rodrigo. Uh, yeah, so you mentioned that I think it was you that's part of why part of the reason why people go to universities because they want to be employed. Or you can you can do like me. You can go to the Code Golf website, you can find APL, then you find the APL orchard, then you meet Adam, then you learn some APL, and then you get asked if you want to internet dialogue, then you do a decent job, and then you get hired. So that <laughs> is that is that a large group of people that have taken that path? Uh... <laughs> it's it's my path. And <laughs> so it's a non-zero number of people that have done that and it works. Uh, I think it's quite interesting how, yeah, how you can meet APL and stumble upon APL on, on Code Golf fans. Uh, Richard, and then we'll go to another question in the queue. Really, I just have a question for uh, Victor that's actually from Fiona in, in the Q&A. But um, I know that uh, in decades gone by, a lot of people were introduced to APL at their universities, like uh, in APL courses specifically. Um, but Victor, do you think it would have been useful to have been taught APL or shown APL uh, during your studies? Um, okay, yeah, yeah, actually, personally, I think it would have been useful to have been taught APL because, majorly because of the, the way, like, naturally, when you learn APL, you, you don't learn the, um, the shortcuts, like the no, rather the long cuts to programming, the trying to make it work. When you learn APL, you, you learn it by like putting two arrays together and making sure it works. Like it's parallel. It's, you don't have to start trying to um, make it work by putting additions 
and subtractions, just trying to measure your code box. So I, I think it would have really been helpful to, and it would have actually reoriented the way we think or the way we used to think because a lot of things could have been solved with this. I mean, in, in my school, for example, we had this notion that, um, I've been not at, we have this notion that most of the things that they teach the students in mathematics, like they believe it's not practical, it's not applicable, that they can't relate to it. They just have to read and excel in exams and that would probably be the end because after the next year's exam, you wait for the next year's exam. It's just like it means to get through and die. But with APL, you, you get to pick up your paper, your pen and your, and your paper, you, you calculate, you, you get the, the optimal way to a solution and you just put it in and it works. It's more like the math comes alive. So I, I think it would have been really helpful. I really good to hear. I think we do hear that kind of perspective from uh, newcomers to APL. Uh, I shouldn't say a surprising amount. I should be used to it by now, but it is always like kind of surprising to hear it said out loud by people outside of uh, our own communities and organizations. That idea of like you think through the problem, you find the way to solve it, and then when you just put it in the computer, it works. Um, I, I think this is something where APL can make a big difference if it's taught, not because you necessarily end up using APL, but it changes your way of thinking. It gives you new pathways of thinking. And people who write in, shall we say, traditional programming languages, which are almost all LGOL type or C type languages, um, they are able to write better code if they have opened their mind with APL. And so APL can have an, an invisible impact on the entire world of computing. If those people that go out and write those programs in those traditional new used languages in this day and age, have been exposed to APL, they can simply do a better job. I uh, want to be a bit cheeky and direct one last um, Q&A question that we have at Victor, only because you're the person on this panel with, I suspect, the least APL experience out of all of us, right? You're relatively new to this. Uh, but Aaron Sue has, has put a fairly interesting question in the Q&A, which is there, is some, there are some people with a perspective or argument that um, APL, the programming language, is actually these days more suited to some uh, small set of, of genius wizard programmers who can understand how it works and utilize it. But as a relative newcomer, Victor, do you think APL is just for super duper clever people or do you think it's accessible and can be leveraged by quote unquote from this question normal folk from my own point of view i i think any anybody who can who could who can take a who can grasp any programming language should be able to code apl because um it's it's not the the hard part the, in fact there the, is literally no hard part if you take your time to to read the the, the book and you you devote yourself to the questions of whatever you want to use APL for to solve the, the, it's, the rules are the rules are clear the there's there's no there's no great there's no gray area everything has been outlined clearly and like I I was working on I, I was reading a book about on, on transformers and I, I was wishing I I had this in APL because it's just 
it would have been so, so easy for me. I, I, I wouldn't have to be doing a lot of extra thinking that, that seemed normal. So I, 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 I don't think, I, I think that the, the, the genius in, in, in the people that learn APL is the fact that they chose to learn APL. Amazing. I feel like we should open that question up to, to other folks as well, too. Um, so I'm just, I can, I can re-articulate it. Uh, and I'd say we, I can read the whole thing. So this is the second question from Aaron Shu. Some people make the argument that even after APL education has improved, that the APL language is just inherently too hard to use for quote-unquote normal programmers slash domain experts, and that it's really only a tool for extremely competent quote-unquote geniuses rather than quote-unquote normal folk. There may be some parallels with some people arguing that traditional math notation is just inherently too hard to be a professional at it, except for very few. Uh, the debate rages there as well. Uh, thoughts. So yeah, we just heard from Victor. Um, do other folks have thoughts on this? Uh, we've got two hands up. So we'll go first with Brian Becker, and then we'll go to Rodrigo. Well, we've conducted the uh, APL problem solving competition now for 13 years. And what I'm consistently amazed by is that it reiterates how really low the entry barrier is to APL, to being able to do productive and non-trivial things in APL with relatively uh, small learning curve. Uh, you can go to any number of presentations over the past few years. And granted, these, the people that have won the competition are, are generally pretty, uh, pretty smart, but they were able to either through the tool tips or reading, mastering dialogue, or you know, with, with relatively little resource, learn enough APL to not only solve the problems for the competition, but to do a good enough job to win. And so when you say that you, know, you need to be a genius to learn uh, to use APL, there are certainly a number of geniuses in the APL community. I, I, I don't consider myself to number among them, but um, it's really a, a, a tool for the masses. Uh, most languages, not only do you have to tell the computer what to do, you also have to tell it how to do it. And APL eliminates that second part entirely. Rodrigo? Yeah, I want to I wanna speak to the math comparison part of Aaron's question, because I did study maths at university. And one thing I noticed is that maths notation is not too hard for, you don't have to be a genius in order to be able to use maths notation. You just need to be a genius to do genius things with the notation, but you can be, you can be competent at it and still do pretty good things. And I think it's the same thing with with APL, if, if you are a genius, then you will probably have an easier time understanding APL and an easier time doing genius-like things with APL. But if you're just a regular person or an average person, you can still learn APL. And of course, that, that's not to say that some people have their brains wired differently and some have more ease with it and some find, find it more difficult, but it's, I think it's still fairly accessible to, 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 to the average person. Ron? Um, well, my experience started in 1970 when I was using APL to teach computer science in the high schools of Hampton, Virginia. And the one problem that the schools had is uh, they couldn't get the kids to leave the school at the end of the day. They wanted to be at the APL terminal doing things. It almost became addictive. Uh, so, And this wasn't a course that was specially narrowly tailored. It was open to anybody who wanted to take it. The only thing was it wasn't a required course. So it wasn't a case that you had to do this. The kids there were there because they wanted to be. And they were actually turned on by the fact that you had this new tool that you've never had before to get a computer to do things for you. 
with a minimal bureaucracy between you and the machine that you didn't have to learn an esoteric language. You just learned a little bit at a time and tried it to see what happens. I will, uh, I'll read a couple of the comments too that are, uh, have been posted as form in the form of questions, but I think they're really answers. So um, Robert Bernecki, who's a, has a lot, very long and prolific uh, APL career, um, uh, writes, I can teach APL to children and artists in two minutes, including a test with reduction. Uh, the trick is to choose your vocabulary, e.g. verb and adverb versus function and higher order function. And then goes on to say that no genius is, uh, no genius is required. And then uh, Tony Corso also says, uh, APL isn't for brainy wizards. Uh, APL transforms you into a brainy wizard, uh, which I'm, <laughs> I definitely, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that it's the language of the gods, uh, as as um, <laughs> Rodrigo said earlier. But uh, I I get this feeling like if you've seen the movie Inception, I have all these different like uh, sort of metaphors from movies. But if you've seen the movie Inception, where they have the scene where um, I'm not going to remember her name, but she's the the dream architect, and uh, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio takes her into the dream for the first time and says, "Oh, you can do whatever you want." And then she very quickly realizes, like, "Oh, that means I could." I can literally bend the rules of, you know, uh, physics and flip this city and turn it into a box. And uh, at times, um, that's what APL feels like. Like it's, and it's like I said, it's the Grand Canyon thing. Like until you solve a certain problem that you've only known how to solve sort of serially or with a for loop, and then you do it in literally like three characters, uh, you, you, you can't, ex you know, you can't know what that feels like until you actually uh, do it yourself. And I just, uh, I want to sort of linger on the last question. Is there any, anyone else that wants to sort of uh, give their thoughts? Um, I think it's clear that we're all in agreement. You don't need to be a genius, but if anyone has some sort of anecdotal uh, thing they want to add to that before um, we ask the next question, if not, we can just move on. Morton? Uh, well, I would say, I mean, APL doesn't become truly valuable until you have an interesting problem to solve. And that does sort of place a bar somewhere. I guess that is true. Um, I will. I, I just realized that I did not. I even had a, an answer prepared that I didn't even say, and that um, is that I've realized recently from listening to um, uh, uh, I think a dialogue talk that APL is is an extremely high level language, um, and in fact, I think I actually realized this when I was talking on uh, my other podcast with my co-host Bryce, and he made some comment that he said, "Oh, you're a very high level." programmer, which is why you love APL. And I'm a very low level programmer. I like to think in bits. And uh, that's why, you know, I, I, I lean more to C++. And I had never like my whole professional career has been in C++. So I've always thought of myself as a low level programmer, but I didn't, I didn't choose C++. I just fell into C++ and ever, I've been doing it ever since. And, and since then, the languages that, you know, top my list are, you know, APL, Haskell, they're very, they're languages where I don't need to think about the detail, as, you know, some people say that APL suppresses the detail, like it, it you can just code a rotate or a, a reverse, you don't have to set up a for loop with an index and incrementing and yada, yada, yada. Um, so when, when people say, oh, it's when they make this remark is you need to be a genius, I think it, it's the exact opposite. It's just that it looks different. And that's what scares people. Um, but actually, in my opinion, it's one of the simplest languages, like the, the expertise that my colleagues that they have to develop in order to be really good C++ programmers. I think you need a fraction of that to become a really good APL programmer because it's such a it's it's a way, way simpler model. Um, we will go to a very we're going to do something interesting here. So we got a question a while ago that uh, sort of got answered in the chat, but we will do a sort of raise of hands because uh, and we'll just I'll get a account 
of the number of people um, to see what the answer to this is. So I can't even, oh, there it is. Yeah, the question's from uh, Ezekiel Berman. Uh, I apologize if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, um, who asks, uh, do you do TDD when programming with APL? Now, TDD is an overloaded, overloaded acronym. Um, I'm gonna assume that stands for test-driven development, although in some circles it's known as type-driven development. But uh, raise of hands if you, uh, while programming in APL, um, do TDD in some form or another. So that was one, two, three, four, five, six of one, two, three times five is 15 plus one is 16, although minus four because four folks don't have their cameras on, which is 12. So that was what, six out of 12 is 50%. Um, so I, Ron, you've got your hand up, so I'll, I'll uh, let you uh, go ahead. Oh, and then Richard um, might've put his hand up to vote. So it might've been seven out of 13, uh, but go ahead, Ron. <laughs> well, I've been pushing for test-driven development within Dialogue because I did a lot of that when I was working for Amazon. Because the basic problem you have is uh, when you write code, how do you know it actually works? And then once you've written it, how do you know it continues to work when somebody's been changing your code? So their model that we fell into is once you get past the quick and dirty prototyping phase, when you're serious about your code, you write your code, first write all your test cases that determine whether your code is right. And of course you're writing them now when you don't have any code, which means every last one of your tests will start failing immediately. Then you start writing the code until you get all your test cases to pass. And you just continue to use those test cases as you change the code. Because one of the problems is, even if you think you know what you're doing, you don't necessarily know all the interactions of the code. So you make a change in the code. You don't realize until some user has called you up and said, this release piece of code does the wrong thing in this particular condition. You say, oh. And so you really need a way to make sure that that kind of code doesn't get out of the wild. So you need to have a way to have assurance that your code still works. And if you think about it, if you write your test code in a literate fashion, it's not only good test code, it's documentation for how the code should behave. So someone who comes into your project from new and doesn't know anything about it can read the test cases and start understanding what the code is supposed to do without worrying about some of the details. So that was my experience with test-driven development. It's just a really good thing. And that goes along with the notion of continuously refactoring your code. Because as you write code, over time, you'll discover a couple of things. That the way you wrote it originally is not really the right way to do it, either because you understand the problem better now or because the management has changed your requirements. So what you did before is no longer really the right thing to do. And you have a choice at that point. You can quack hack your code to make it sort of work the way it should, or you can rewrite it so that it actually looks like you knew what you're doing when you wrote the code in the first place. And for somebody coming along later on who has to understand your code without having been there in the process, it's much nicer to have code that's more straightforward and actually conveys the ideas more clearly. So those are the things that I think are really good about test-driven development and continuous refactoring. And I, I should spend some time listening to Ron about test-driven development. I use it slightly differently. And it's because of the array languages that I do that, I tend not to write my tests first. My first test tends to be what I write. 
Um, it's just, it seems to get in the way of what I'm trying to do. I guess if I took it up a level, it would make more sense. But initially, quite often, I'm just, when I'm actually playing with the language, that's like I'm testing. Now, as soon as I get something locked in, that's where it kicks in for sure. Because as he was talking about refactoring and making sure that your changes you make are still on course, that absolutely is what I do with that. Because it's so easy to go in and say, I should have done this differently. And then you go in and you immediately see that what you might have thought you were going to do differently is exactly what you want, in which case all your tests pass, or if they fail, how they fail becomes really great information on refactoring. And so the the step I take with the test-driven, it's not so much driven, it's test continuation development. I'm not sure what it is. But I find I ju- want to jump on right away first and and try stuff because that seems to be the easiest way. But as soon as I have something working, I'm writing tests to make sure that it continues to work. Uh, just mentioning that when you're doing uh, test-driven development and you've got your tests and your code, if you have something that starts failing in your code, you have a choice. Is the problem in the code or is the problem in the test? So this is a forcing function, which makes sure that your tests are in sync with your actual code, that you accurately document what you intended the behavior to be. So that's a way to treat your test-driven development as your documentation. And you can force it to be always correct. The problem with textual documentation is it's not tightly connected to your code. So there's no way to force it to always be accurate. And in fact, there's a general property that people have is over time, documentation tends to turn into lies just because there's not enough forcing function to make sure you update it. All right. And I think with that, we are two minutes away from the hour mark. So I think I will wrap this up with uh, two different things. Uh, maybe I'll, the, one of the, the third last thing I'll note is that um, Aaron Shu in the chat, uh, who we've heard twice now from, has said, uh, I like TDD, but not unit tests, which sounds like some kind of oxymoron. But uh, Aaron, if you have a link on uh, TDD in APL, uh, feel free to share it with us and we'll put it in the show notes for folks that <laughs> are interested. Or yeah, there's a, a, a link that he just shared us to. Um, I, I knew that there was some sort of content attached to that uh, that oxymoron there. Um, and, and I sense Aaron will be the guest on a future podcast for sure. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I don't think, yeah, we can have a podcast about array languages without having Aaron on at some point. Um, but yeah, the, the the second last thing here that I'll I'll say or read is a, a comment that actually was um, uh, typed out in the chat way earlier on, and I think it's a great note to end on, um, which reads from Ilva. Uh, I apologize once again if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. My love of dialogue APL can be said like this: When I am trying to solve a problem, the ability uh, to stop the interpretation anywhere and test the solution alive. Uh, thanks for this meeting. I hope we will see each other next year in Portugal. Uh, so yeah, I hope as well that this uh, this conference will happen in person. I was really hoping to to do this in person this year, but it, it obviously because of the pandemic didn't work out. Um, but yeah, hopefully we'll be able to do an actual uh, in live in person sort of podcast recording a year from now, and that will be awesome. Uh, but with that, I think we will uh, cue a happy array programming. So what I'll do is count to three, and then at the end of three, folks, if everyone wants to unmute we can have uh, the most synchronous and most people at one time ever in the history of ArrayCast saying happy Array programming. So on three, one, two, three. Happy Happy Array array programming. programming.
Nailed it. 